And one of the things I love about being in churches uh, kind of in general is that any given Sunday morning, uh, every person that is sitting here has um, an interest in God. And so I find that fascinating. I think that's a unique way of looking at it because that, that observation or that statement um, can mean a whole bunch of different things. You could have interest in God that could be just a cursory um, curiosity, uh, something that you just, you know, I want to know what he's about. I want to know who he is. I want to get to understand a little more about his character, his nature, and the things he does and how he works. Or your interest in God could be a consuming, overwhelming obsession with uh, glorifying God and, and knowing him more and, and going deeper. And that's a journey that you will never uh, you know, reach the end to during this time on earth. So I'm glad that you guys are all here. I'm very uh, excited to get to share my story with you. Um, I hope that wherever you lie on that spectrum and your interest with God, that uh, something I'll say will help you in that journey, help you uh, spark that interest, fan the flame, uh, make it burn brighter and, and go deeper. And so uh, my name's Tim Myers. I'm 33 years old. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. Um, yeah, it's, <laughs> thank you. <clears throat> Sometimes it's compassion that we get for that, but uh, generally, um, uh, and Lauren, it took Lauren definitely getting used to Cleveland, but she's coming around. Um, but we, uh, yes, love being from Cleveland. I've lived kind of like all over the states, but um, I'm just going to share a little bit about my background, my story, and kind of where I am today and what God has done, just the miracles he's done in my life. Uh, I was born into just an upper-middle-class family in Cleveland, grew up um, kind of never really needing anything. Uh, we weren't rich, but again, we were always provided for. I didn't struggle. I had uh, my mother and stepfather uh, were wonderful. They loved me. Um, again, in their way. And my father, uh, he had remarried when I was young, and they lived in Florida. So I grew up with a close relationship with them, but having kind of a split family. Um, just go ahead, get into like, let's see. I think it was first grade is when I distinctly remember that uh, I, I started to lie. And I realized <clears throat> that I was good at it. I was able to convince people, manipulate people, um, get things that I wanted, get um, out of things that I didn't want to have happen, and things like that. And that moment at the time, obviously I didn't realize it because I was so young, but turned out to be a pivotal, pivotal moment in my life because it became a habit. It became something that I did uh, in pretty much everything. Um, I kept secrets from my family. I uh, kept secrets about you know the things I thought about, the things I did, the things I thought about myself, and all of that. And uh, that is going to end up being a very, very important uh, observation later in my story. So going through school, I always did well. Um, didn't have the greatest grades, but tested very well. I uh, didn't have to try very hard to get through school and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> in high school was really when I started uh, getting involved with drugs and alcohol. Um, again, just kind of recreationally, was bored, suburbia, and just started getting into drugs and alcohol. And it was kind of an innocent thing. But then quickly I realized that I was the one when <clears throat> my friends kind of realized, would be like, hey, like, we're cool. I'd be like, you know, let's go farther. Let's do more. Let's whatever. And so uh, I didn't, again, realize it at the time. But now looking back, I always had this um, predisposition to addiction uh, and just always wanting more, never finding being satisfied or trying to fill some kind of longing, some hole, or find some escape from uh, something that I didn't want to have to face. Um, graduated high school, went to college in Orlando, Florida. So I left the 
beautiful weather of Cleveland, Ohio, and went down to Orlando and spent some time there and was going to college. I got involved in a band. Uh, we had some success, went to L.A., made a record, and so, of course, I dropped out of school because I was going to be a rock star. And then things fell apart pretty, pretty quickly after that. Uh, my drug use had increased. Um, even in the whole rock and roll or band lifestyle and stuff like that, it was a secret I kept from my bandmates. I mean, we drank and stuff. They had no idea the drugs I was doing. They had no idea uh, the secrets I was keeping and stuff like that. I got to a point where I realized it was too much and I just had to leave. I just walked away from everything. I moved on to South Florida uh, and, and moved in and lived with my father. <clears throat> and so I was working with him. And uh, after a couple of years, found myself living then in Alabama which is a great state that was much more southern than Florida, even though geographically it's not necessarily the same. But the people were wonderful, um, but I was still struggling. Just, again, you know, kind of like an addiction, holding random jobs at restaurants and stuff like that and never getting any traction. At this point, I'm in my, uh, you know, early 20s. People are starting to graduate college and get jobs and stuff, and I'm basically doing nothing. A coworker of mine invited me to go to a young adult... Um, worship service, like kind of a college age because we were living right by Auburn University, invited me to this worship service, and I had been raised Catholic, um, didn't have any animosity towards God or anything like that, but I had never explored a relationship with him. Uh, I had never thought about it too terribly much. And so this coworker invited me to go to this worship service, and I was kind of like, oh, sure, why not? So we went, and it was the first time I ever saw contemporary worship. It was the first time... Um, I ever heard kind of like music that glorified God that I actually liked. And being a musician, for me, I was like, what's going on? This is awesome. I didn't understand why some people were raising their hands and getting excited. That kind of weirded me out. But, um, but I was like, this music, like, it stirred something in me, right? And then the guy got up to speak, and he was speaking on 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. And he just, it was just the gospel. I mean, he just shared the gospel. And I was sitting there like, how have I never heard this before? How have I been in church my whole life up until high school, every Sunday, and I have just never heard this message? I have never heard about forgiveness and the, the washing away of sins and the, you know, the, as far as the east is from the west, and I will remember them no more. Like, how have I never heard this? Like, where was this? And then, of course, the enemy whispered in my ear and was like, yeah, that's a beautiful thing and that's cool, but you could never have that. That's not for you. Um, he was like, you know, you've done too many bad things and, you know, these people are all right and you're just, you, you know, you're going to make this commitment and then you won't hold on to it. And I was like, I don't want to mess with God being like, yeah, I want to be a Christian. And then like, you know, not. And, you know, I didn't want to mess with that. So, but I kept going. And then it was a couple weeks after that, about a month in, and it was during worship. And I know Jesus stands at the door and knocks, but sometimes he kicks the door in. And that's what he did for me. He kicked the door in and was like, you're mine. And he, uh, Grab hold of me. Uh, I got hooked up with some uh, friends, some solid Christian friends that I didn't know how to have young adult relationships that didn't involve drugs and alcohol, that didn't involve partying and stuff like that. And so it was wild for me and super exciting to experience healthy relationships with people that love the Lord, that were passionate about his word and passionate about seeking his glory. And it just really started to change my life. But I was still struggling financially. Um, having issues with uh, transportation and housing and all that kind of stuff. And then through 
an absolute miracle, uh, kind of like string of events. One morning out of nowhere, my mom, still living in Ohio, called me and was like, I know you're struggling. Why don't you come home and, you know, move home? And so I took her up on that, moved home through another extraordinary set of events. Uh, God hooked me up with a church that was like half a mile from um, my house that was... uh, and how I got connected with that church was a guy I hadn't spoken to since I was in fourth grade was accepting the youth pastor position at that job the week that I moved up there. And so we reconnected, and that's where I ended up. Um, so from there on, I was doing well. I got involved with the worship team, things like that. I got involved in a really intense Bible study and a group of uh, laymen, just businessmen that were passionate about the Word of God, uh, passionate about learning how to you know, feed yourself, how to dig into the Word and study it. And, and I got consumed with these Bible studies and uh, studying theology and stuff like that and just fascinated and was able to speak about it well. And people would be like, wow, like, that sounds really cool. And, and so I was like thinking that I was just like on fire and doing great and stuff. There wasn't like a ton of fruit. I was doing some discipleship, but not a whole lot. And this was a, you know, like a couple year period that was there, and that was when I met Lauren. Uh, I was doing well, and then through that time, we got married. Um, and then, ultimately, well, we ended up having our two beautiful boys, Jack and Moses, who are downstairs right now. Um, but then during that time, and as I got consumed with theology and Bible study and all that kind of stuff, uh, I realized that it was becoming more of a cerebral aspect for me. It was a cerebral uh, relationship. It was me... Uh, seeking my own glory and how well I could participate in these Bible studies and how many people I could say, have say like, wow, that's profound and all these kinds of things. And um, I realized that my relationship God was in my head and not in my heart. And the enemy took uh, opportunity uh, of that fact and uh, alcohol began to creep back into my life. And so Lauren and I had been married just a couple of years and slowly I started drinking and True to my form as just a liar and someone who kept things in the dark, I hid it from them. And like I said when I was young, I was a good liar, a good manipulator, good at hiding things. And it went on for years that I was drinking secretly every day uh, in my car and driving to work and everywhere and whatever like that. And no one in my family knew, absolutely no one. And eventually, of course, it caught up to me and got to the point that it couldn't be concealed anymore, um, which I know was God, because there were moments when I would be praying on my, and all this time we're going to church, I'm on a worship team, still going to Bible studies and just drinking like constantly. And I would be on my face in the prayer room being like, God, take this away. I know you can take this away. I know that you are that mighty, that powerful, and you can heal me of this. And he said, expose it. Bring it to the light. And I was like, nope, never. I will not do that. Like, no way. And uh, so then he did it for me. Praise God that he did. And that's just how he works. Um, So it got exposed. I went to treatment. I went to, first it was like a 60-day rehab program. Immediately after that, I did eight months in what was considered a Christian um, rehab program that really, that term would be applied very loosely, I think, looking back on it. but it was my first try at that kind of stuff, and I had all this time, uh, mostly sober, and you know, came out and thinking that, like, okay, I'm going to be good, it's going to be great, and it's going to be awesome. And it just absolutely wasn't, because uh, the condition of my heart hadn't changed, um, and I hadn't been truly like freed or delivered. I hadn't really sought healing for what the problem was. I just had some kind of sobriety time and thought that, uh, you know, like I was doing good and I was going to make it. So came out and very shortly after that I fell again 
And then that led to again and again. And then, of course, uh, shame sets in. Uh, that guilt sets in. Uh, very serious depression sets in. Uh, during this time, uh, Lauren and I would we'd be together for some periods of time. Then I would be in a bad place and we'd be separated. I was in and out of um, psych wards at hospitals uh, for weeks at a time. Uh, totally suicidal. Um, just, yeah, really, really, really struggling with, with darkness, with hopelessness, with despair. Um, and it was motivated by like my shame and guilt, uh, things that I had done, things that uh, I had been a part of, the way that I had essentially abandoned and betrayed my family and um, the secrets that I had kept from them. And I realized, this is going back to my earlier observation about starting early as a liar, is that I grew up my whole life believing that no matter what kind of relationship I had with anyone, if they really knew, if they really knew the things that I did, the things that I thought, there is no way that I would be loved. There is no way I could be accepted. There was no way I could be appreciated. So any relationship that I had, whether it was my mother, my brothers, my sisters, my father, my wife, my kids, anyone, on the surface level, it's like, okay, they love me, but I'm always telling myself if they really knew, if they really knew, then they wouldn't, and there, there wouldn't, it wouldn't be there. And so I continue to um, you just wallow in lack of self-worth, self-worth and, and shame and that guilt, and it just became, became crushing. And, um, you know, I, I've gone from finding myself in a public bathroom cutting my wrists to locking myself in a hotel room with enough alcohol and, and drugs to effectively kill me and coming to two days later, wandering down the street and walking into a church and taken to an emergency room where they thought I had had a stroke because of the damage I had done um, to my mind. And so after that time, um, it got to the point where I was basically told, like, you can either be homeless or we will take you to uh, a program that's uh, international. It's called Teen Challenge. And my understanding is that there is one uh, in London or somewhere close to here, right? Yeah, so that there is one near here. And so I don't know uh, any details about, about that one. Teen Challenge is affiliated internationally, but I know that there is a great deal of difference in um, autonomy each center has as to how their program works. <clears throat> and so where I was at, yeah, there was two phases. So I went in Cleveland to a phase for four months. And then after that, uh, to a second phase, which was in Missouri. And that was where home centers from around the Midwest of the United States fed into there. And so that's where there was a lot of guys. And Teen Challenge is um, the faith-based approach to the drug, drug epidemic. Um, they believe that addiction is a spiritual problem. Uh, there's emotional and psychological issues as well, but ultimately there's a spiritual root to it. And regardless of whether you want to argue that it is a spiritual, emotional, physical, or physiological root, the reality is, is that Jesus is the healer of all of those things, so I don't know what we're arguing about. Um, so Jesus, they, there we, don't, we didn't talk about uh, steps. We didn't talk about triggers. We were in the Word. We were memorizing Scripture. Uh, we were standing on His promises, and we... I found myself transformed. And it was in Teen Challenge where I realized um, how much I had made God a part of like my mind and thinking and I thought I had it figured out and I knew all these deep things and I realized that there is a Holy Spirit that is 
present and he's active and he's powerful and he does miracles and he changes hearts and he sets free the captive and he's doing that today. And so that was my experience over that time. I got to Missouri and it just continued to grow and grow and grow. Um, I'd be two months in and think, wow, like my eyes have been opened. And then I'd be four months in like, wow, I didn't even know anything two months ago. And then so on and so forth until finally... I just came to the conclusion that I don't really know anything. And it's just awesome because God's great. And um, so during that time, uh, Lauren and I, we communicated very minimally. She was raising the boys by herself as she had been essentially for a couple years. And I was forced to learn what it meant to just radically trust God just trust him and trust his goodness and trust that no matter the circumstances, no matter what's going on around me, he is in control and he's good. And and that is something that absolutely changed my life, was learning how to trust God. And I graduated from Teen Challenge in September. Um, Since then, so yeah, that was September. That was only three months ago. And I'm here with my wife. I'm here with my kids. Um, I'm with our family. Um, I had been, hopelessness is hell itself, like that, that's hell. And, uh, I had spent time hopeless. And so I'm just constantly in awe of how God can, can restore that. And I'm healthy. I feel good. I never thought that I would feel good again. I never, um, thought that there was like an end in sight and that end, that, that, that pit of, darkness that I was in. I didn't think that could work or that there would be any way out of it. And, and uh, I'm here, standing here, to say that there is hope. There's always hope. And for Lewis, and damn it, hold on, you know? There's always hope because Jesus, again and again in his life, he shattered the idea of what's impossible. That term doesn't really carry any meaning anymore. <laughs> He turned water to wine. He opened eyes. He cast out demons and he raised the dead. And sometimes he raised the dead with a shout when he called Lazarus forth. And there's another time that he raised the dead with a whisper. He said, little girl, I say to you, arise. And he does all those things and he's doing them now. And the thing is, is like there is no shortage of pain and sadness and despair in this world. I was listening to these prayer requests this morning and, and the sickness and things. We can look around the earth, we can turn on the news and, and it's everywhere, it's everywhere. We can look in our country, it's everywhere. You can look in this city, I'm sure it's everywhere. In our own home, if we're being honest, there's sadness, there's pain, there's despair. And if we're really honest, we look into our own soul and there's times that there's sadness, there's pain, and there's despair. And the thing that sadness and pain and despair all have in common is longing. Is that in those feelings, there's a longing. There's a longing for freedom. There's a longing for peace. There's a longing for joy. And the amazing thing is that Jesus is our healer. He's the liberator. He is our joy. He's the Prince of Peace, and he is love. And we seek him, we seek God, and those things are available. They really, they really are. This is not, we're at church, let's talk about God. I'm telling you, they're available. There's a passage in Joel chapter 2 where God says, um, he says, yet even now return to me with weeping and fasting and mourning and rend your hearts. 
and not your garments. And I'm sure most of you are familiar in the uh, ancient times when there was, someone was in despair, whether it was outrage or frustration or sadness or uh, mourning, they would rip their clothes. And that was this outward expression. So everyone knew, like, I am like emotionally exploding. I don't know how to handle this. I don't know what to do. And so I'm just ripping my clothes. I guess that would be like the modern day equivalent of guys punching holes in walls or whatever when they just don't know what to do. And God says, rend your heart, not your garments. And he wants us to lay ourselves bare. He wants us to just be exposed before him, whether it's in repentance, uh, in forgiveness or thanksgiving. Um, in awe and praise and worship and joy that if we rend our hearts and we lay those things before him, if we abide in him and his love and his mercy from the depth of our soul, from the depth of who we are, and we call to him and he will answer. And there's a time that uh, Jesus called to God and he answered him and other people heard it. And it was in John chapter 12 and Jesus had just... um, arrived in Jerusalem for the last time. He was received as a king. He was praised. He was, uh, th- there's a buzz around the city. Everyone was like wondering what was going to happen. Is he the new king? Is he, you know, coming to overthrow Roman rule? And he's thinking about and talking about his impending death, uh, his suffering, his humiliation, his separation from the father, which I think was his, the greatest fear in Jesus's life. And uh, he may be also in his mind as he's thinking about his ultimate victory that he has coming over death. And um, with all of these thoughts and these things swirling around his mind, he's literally in mid-sentence with some people and he cries out, Father, glorify your name. And so that was, the, that was the focus that overtook everything is Jesus in this moment. He didn't let the pain of the moment interrupt the purpose of his mission, which was to glorify God the Father. And so I wonder how often that is really the cry of my heart and that's really the cry of our heart. Is our sole purpose to see God's name glorified, whether we're in, in sorrow or we're in, in pain or suffering or in the moments of victory, in the moments of joy, do we say, Father, glorify your name through our laughter, through our tears? Do we say, Father, glorify your name? And I would suggest that if we want to see this move of God, we must be consumed, consumed with the manifestation of God's glory on earth. That has to be the cry of our heart. And God answered, and he, he answered Jesus, and he says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And I think that's a promise, and I think that's an invitation. And I think that we somehow can be a part or a catalyst of God's glory being manifest on this earth. And I think that if we want to experience and see God's power and glory on this earth, we have to be willing to participate in God's power and glory on this earth. We have to have open minds to it. We have to have the faith that it's going to happen. We have to have the trust that it's going to happen. If we want to experience God's power and glory on earth, we need to be willing to participate in it. And that statement, when I thought that, I was like, that's terrifying. That is really scary. And it's humbling to think that we could, um, that we could take a part of that. And it's overwhelming. But I think that there's a, a model that we have for how to go about doing that. And of course, that's Christ. And in Philippians chapter 2, um, you know, Paul says, you know, have this mind among you that was in Christ Jesus. And he says that even though he was in his very nature, God, he emptied himself. He took on the form of servant. He was um, found in human form. He became obedient to the point of death on the cross so that uh, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue confess. At the end, every knee 